Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clobus, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with James Libby about his biography of the Kentucky politician Alvin Barkley, who rose from humble beginnings to become Senate Majority Leader and the 35th Vice President of the United States during the 1940s. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. Jim, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Yes, and I'll try to make that a a nice link with Barkley as well. Um, I have a, a couple of bachelor degrees, but after I got those, I volunteered for the Army in part to get a GI Bill because I I wanted to get a master's degree at Eastern Kentucky University, and it focused on 20th century U.S. history. And I I took courses in a seminar with the department chair, George Robinson, and that becomes the key because he had published a couple of Barclay articles. He also wrote a multi-page manuscript that was not published on the relationship between Barclay and, and the president, President Roosevelt. And so I knew quite a bit about Barclay before getting a PhD at the University of Kentucky, where the uh, Barclay papers are actually located. And so after I finished the PhD, the University Press of Kentucky published one of my books. It was a book of a, about a Russian-American. The press liked what I had done and asked me to do a short 100-page biography of Barclay as part of the Kentucky Bicentennial Bookshelf series. Um, and so I, I researched Barclay papers. I interviewed um, Barclay's son and corresponded with daughters, and I, I read Barclay's autobiography and some dissertations and so forth. And uh, then I did a short book, and it came out in 1979. But uh, here's the key in terms of the current book. Um, it received nice reviews, but the common complaint was that a comprehensive biography was needed. So in 1979, I began working on the full biography. I interviewed uh, lots of people in Western Kentucky who knew Barclay. I went to Washington, D.C. and worked in the manuscript room of the Library of Congress National Archives. I subsequently visited the Roosevelt and Truman Presidential Libraries, and I collected literally thousands of newspaper articles on him. And so then in 1980, I started writing the book I had a major surgery, unfortunately, at the time, and I was an academic administrator at the college level, and uh, it knocked the stuffing out of me. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I continued writing book reviews and stuff like that and, and encyclopedia entries, but I, I stopped working on the biography. And then in 1986, my wife and I moved to uh, Florida, and I returned to the college classroom. So despite three separate moves and writing several other books, I kept all my Barclay research. And uh, over time, by the way, I also wrote and published several articles on Barclay, both popular and scholarly. And I did an encyclopedia entry and a chapter for the book on the uh, vice presidents. So after finishing a biography of another Russian-American, I decided to complete after 30 years the comprehensive Barclay biography. So that's how the the book got started. So this is a project that's long been in gestation and really reflects in many ways a a lifetime of of study of Barclay. Yes. In fact, I was joked about that uh, when I retired. 
<laughs> one of the people who had interesting things to say about me said that I had uh, developed this interesting uh, association with, with Alvin Barkley. And so what kind of person was Alvin Barkley? Well, that's an interesting question. He was a, a, a very interesting uh, individual. He knew a lot of uh, stories. He loved to sing songs, even though he really couldn't sing that well. Uh, <laughs> and he proved to be a, a very effective uh, politician, extremely hardworking in, in campaigns especially. In fact, he, he got a nickname in the 1920s because he was uh, so solid in that area that uh, he was called the Iron Man of politics. And uh, that that uh, that stuck with him up until 1954. And when I was reading your book, one of the things that I, I, I was struck by was how so much of that stamina that earned him that title was in many ways a product of his very physical and hardworking upbringing. Yes, absolutely. That's that's correct. He he was born in a in a log cabin. Uh, that's one of the reasons he thought he would be president of the United States someday um, in 1877 and in the western part of Kentucky. And his father, John, was a, a tenant farmer who raised dark tobacco. That's for chewing, not for smoking. And so as soon as Barclay was like five or six years old, he began working alongside his father. And he was doing all the full-time farming-type things by the time he was 10, 11, 12 in that uh, particular range. So he became a very strong and uh, sturdy uh, individual who had this uh, very strong uh, farming background. And we have to understand that uh, in terms of his elections in Kentucky, he always got the farmer's vote in all of his elections up until up to 1954. Wow. And, and in between harvesting tobacco and spring planting, Barclay would attend um, a small school in, in Lowe's, Kentucky, where, where they lived. But there's absolutely no telling what grade he was in um, because it was just like a one-room schoolhouse, you know, with different uh, students at different ages and different uh, uh, levels of education. And uh, when the market for dark tobacco declined, the, the family moved to Clinton, Kentucky in 1892 where his father grew corn and wheat instead of uh, the dark tobacco. But uh, Barclay continued his education in Clinton. And here's the interesting thing. Uh, he received a janitorial scholarship to attend free of charge, Marvin College. It's a Methodist college. And, uh, and, and so he was the janitor for the college. Um, and that's how he, he got through the, the school without uh, you know paying fees and so forth. It was really the only way he could have. Uh, yeah, it was. It was the only way because the, the family was impoverished. Uh, these were tenant farmers. Uh, they moved many times. And, uh, and life was not easy for them at all. What led him to, to pursue a, a college education? I mean, was it the, the poverty? Was there, I mean, what led him to think about that as his path uh, forward? Well, he was probably early in his life. It's, it's pretty easy to, to figure out what was happening with him in terms of education because his parents did everything possible to make sure that he did go to school. And that was not always a common occurrence back in the, the late 19th century in, in Kentucky. And his dad, and there's no, no fooling around with this, his dad wanted him to become a, a minister. And so I think that was a, a major part of, of what was happening. But by the time he got through with Marvin, uh, he had a different notion. Uh, he actually graduated with a BA degree and, and received, by the way, a gold medal as the school's best uh, speaker. But um, uh, the president, actually there were two presidents, there were co-presidents of Marvin College, 
they were involved in in law and and later in politics. And uh, Albin uh, simply uh, followed what they were doing, and so he decided to study law. And uh, here we have something kind of interesting that popped up because um, he decided after graduating from Marvin that he would go and study law at Emory College, what was then in Oxford, Georgia. Emory College moved to Atlanta at the turn of the century, between the 19th and 20th century. And it's at this point that we actually get some idea of the overall level of his education in modern terms. Barclay was accepted at Emory not as a graduate student. I mean, he had a a college degree, right? But no. Mm -hmm. Uh, They took him in as an undergraduate at the sophomore level. So we have some notion about uh, what other people thought about, uh, you know, how well he had been prepared and so forth and so on. In terms of memory, I'll just go ahead and, and, and mention that um, he only took one year. He was broke, and he had to return to Kentucky. And uh, his parents had to give up farming. They moved to Paducah, Kentucky, which became his home. And his father worked in a, a cotton a cordage mill. And so uh, Alvin then pursued a law career. But back in those days, you did not have to go to law school. You could uh, gain the, uh, the, the attorney process by uh, reading books in a lawyer's office. And so he, he, he did that. And uh, the key, however, to his financial uh, happiness was the fact that he also studied stenography, and he earned uh, a salary as a court reporter. And then after he passed the bar exam, uh, that was in 1901, Barclay took the... Uh, the summer of 1902, and he took a special law course because he knew that his law background was weak, and he took that at the University of Virginia, uh, where he became enamored of the, the founder, Thomas Jefferson. It seems that he was part of that era of people who were basically born Democrats, although in Kentucky, it wasn't quite the one-party stronghold of the rest of the South. He actually had a very solid two-party tradition. So in Barclay's case, it wasn't foreordained that he was necessarily going to well, be... Well, where uh, he was located in western mm-hmm. Kentucky, that was definitely uh, a Democratic uh, uh, bastion, if you will. And in fact, the, the key to winning an election uh, in western Kentucky was to win the primary. You had to win the primary. If you won the primary... Uh, you could always win the actual election. And yet, now, there's... Now, today, there's, you know, things are quite yeah. different. Okay. Well, I was, I was thinking how you describe in the book, there's a certain amount of tumult taking place in the region's politics during that time about the some of the corruption issues involving the party machine and how Barclay had to maintain, when he was entering politics, a very difficult balancing act. Yes. Yes, he he had to work very very hard. He he had some interesting uh, issues that he had to deal with uh, when once he he decided to uh, to actually get into uh, uh, politics. Um, he he did that in 1906 when he campaigned for the position of county attorney. Uh, I might mention, by the way, in in that regard, um, it was for him a, a win-win situation because even if he lost, his name recognition in Paducah and it's also McCracken County. Uh, would enhance his law practice. So he, he very vigorously and tirelessly uh, canvassed the city and the county and, and won that election. He, he won it because he got the, the primary. Then he, he became a, um, well, actually, he, he, he was the farmer's you know politician, and that's why he, he won so, so easily. Uh, then he sought the, the post of county judge, 
and there were a lot of uh, difficulties at that particular point in time. In fact, uh, he was kind of unusual because a couple of Republicans did win because there was so much corruption by the uh, the Democratic regime that had held the um, uh, positions uh, for such a long time. And you also uh, mentioned that not only was Barkley having to deal with that, but when it came to dealing with Democrats in both the county attorney races and the uh, the county attorney's race and then the county judge race, yeah. that he also, or another thing that distinguished him was where he was ideologically. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that. I mean, where was he, given that at the time, Democrat and Republican was not necessarily an ideological label? Well, of course, he was a, a Democrat, and um, his father had been something of a populist before that. So we can understand a little bit more, perhaps, about Barclay and what he thought. Uh, but his, his focus always seemed to be pretty much, uh, you know, on farmers and, and that type of thing. And so we, we have to understand that um, um, when he became the, the judge, county judge, what he did, um, he, he provided funds or made sure that there were funds to widen and gravel every county road you know, for his rural constituents. And, of course, uh, road improvements gave farmers the opportunity to, to earn extra money because they could work and, and uh, help build the roads and, and get money for that. But it also gave farmers easy access, you know, to Paducah's markets and products and, and uh, even the cultural benefits. And so we begin to see something about Barclay in terms of the values that he has. Um, he, he understood, even before he entered Congress, that he had you know, he had adopted a position that uh, the federal government had a role to play, for example, to solve national problems and and even enhance the lives of citizens. So in the ideological spectrum of the time, he was orienting himself with the progressives. Yes, he was. And in fact, um, when he ran for Congress, uh, he had three strong competitors. And this, again, was for the primary. It was not for the election. Uh, automatically, Whoever won the primary would have been elected uh, to, to, to Congress. But when Barclay ran for Congress, he had several uh, different people who ran against him. And, and the reason he won is because in the midst of their campaign, uh, Woodrow Wilson had been selected as the Democratic candidate for the White House. And uh, he accepted uh, and, and liked uh, the notion of Wilson, and, and he liked the national platform, mainly because it included a big plank on building federal highways. And so later on, when he got into Congress in, in 19, oh gosh, it was 19, uh, uh, 13, yeah, 19, well, no, he got into Congress in 1913, certainly. Mm -hmm. But uh, there were two pieces of legislation, uh, I think it was 1917 and 1921, that uh, began to establish a federal highway system. And this, of course, would help farmers. And that's what he was thinking about. So he was definitely very much focused on farm issues. Yes. Once he goes to Congress, Absolutely. it's not something that he leaves behind. That's correct, yes. Woodrow Wilson really seems to loom large in Barclay's life, and I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about that. Well, of course, both Wilson and and Barclay, of course, uh, had won in, in the same election year, and uh, so they had that in common. And um, uh, Barclay had uh, a number of meetings with, with Wilson. In fact, his, his first meeting uh, occurred very early in, in, 19, in 1913, and, and Wilson did a favor for him. Uh, Barclay had uh, some problems. Uh, one of them had to do with uh, multiple candidates for a postmaster position in the city of Mayfield in, in Barclay's um, first uh, congressional district. 
and and the the president solved the problem for for Barclay, and and so after a, a while with these good relationships, um, Barclay, uh, who knew six different U.S. presidents, came to place uh, Wilson on the highest pedestal. There was no other president that uh, uh, Barclay liked more than than Woodrow Wilson. And it wasn't just Wilson, though, that he was establishing good relations with during this time. You highlight his connections with a lot of both prominent politicians at the time, like uh, Champ Clark, yes. and then also uh, future uh, prominent figures like Sam Rayburn. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, he did. And uh, he himself uh, became very much of a progressive. It's not entirely clear when early in, in his life, even um, before uh, he entered politics, that he was that much of a progressive, but he he became more and more of that uh, in that particular uh, line. Um, he supported, for example, the, the Keating Owen Child Labor Act that restricted the use of child labor under the age of 16. Uh, I have to tell you that the U.S. Supreme Court declared that law unconstitutional, although it was repeated um, and uh, passed finally in, in the New Deal. He also helped prepare the Adamson Act, and this is very important because the Adamson Act that uh, Barclay helped write uh, gave railroad workers the eight-hour day. A lot of people today don't realize that uh, back at that point in time, um, uh, most people worked 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week, and the eight-hour day just did not exist. And the Addison Act is really the the first piece of legislation that uh, uh, promised that type of um, benefit, shall we say, to to workers. And, And I'll also have to mention that, and this is kind of unusual, because Barclay also co-sponsored the Shepherd Barclay Act that prohibited the sale of alcoholic beverages in the District of Columbia. And uh, today, anybody who knows something about prohibition understands that it was absolutely uh, something that did not work. Uh, there were all kinds of interesting uh, and terrible problems connected um, with prohibition. But when Barclay did this, uh, which was back in 1916, um, and that was the first time that he introduced it. Uh, it was considered a very progressive measure because so many people, um, unfortunately, had problems because they drank too much and all of those kinds of things, uh, ruined marriages and all kinds of other uh, problems uh, connected with it. Speaking of marriage, we've been focusing so much on his public career that we yeah. haven't talked much about his sure. uh, family life. Sure. <laughs> what, 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 uh, I was wondering if you spent a few minutes talking about that. Yeah. Um, Barclay, when he uh, first got to um, uh, Paducah, he, he understood that when he became a lawyer, he, he had to absolutely overcome the fact that he was not a native of Paducah. And, and other lawyers, of course, would have the benefit of knowing you know, local people and so forth and, and, and that type of thing. It would be easier for them to get clients. And so when he got into Paducah, he became extremely well-known across town by being very active. He was an active member of the Methodist Church. Um, he was a member of a half dozen different clubs. He became a, a frequent speaker before various organizations. He even took dancing lessons and attended dances. Well, one of those <laughs> one of those uh, dance partners was Dorothy Brower, a storekeeper's daughter. And after a period of romance, uh, Barclay had saved enough money to buy a small four-room house. And at that point, he proposed marriage and, and to Dorothy, and she accepted. Well, they did... Uh, uh, end up with several children, David and uh, Laura Louise and Marianne and so forth, and uh, uh, she proved to be a, a wonderful helpmate. Mm-hmm. She does seem to be absolutely uh, integral to his uh, 
ability to uh, focus upon his career yes. uh, initially in Kentucky, but especially in Washington. Yes, in Washington as well. And uh, they always communicated with each other. And, and Barclay would even talk with her about, you know, things that he was thinking about doing and, and asking her, you know, what uh, what she thought about that particular uh, situation and so forth. So, uh, of course, later on um, in 1942, she suffered a terrible heart attack. And uh, while the doctors at that point in time said that, oh, my gosh, uh, you're, you're not going to live uh, for, for, for two more years. She did live for, for, for five years, but unfortunately she became a complete invalid. And in fact, the Barclays had to move. They had a, a nice uh, three-story house on, on Cleveland Avenue in Washington, D.C. They had to move to an apartment because she couldn't breathe. You know, she couldn't go up and down stairs and all of that kind of stuff. And um, Barclay had to uh, spend most of his salary uh, taking care of her because she had to have for three years, she had to have round-the-clock nursing care, and that was very expensive business. And uh, so this is why Barclay ended up giving a lot of speeches uh, for pay uh, in order to take care of his wife. It was really an, an amazing uh, moment in, in uh, their lives. He certainly followed the, uh, the pledge made at their marriage, you know, in sickness and in health. He took mm-hmm. care of his wife. His wife wasn't the only person he took care of either. I was uh, one of the thing, one of the uh, points you returned to is how he worked in his public career to provide employment for his father. Yes, he also helped his father. Yeah, he became the doorman for Congress. It was really quite interesting, and uh, of course that lasted only as long as the Republicans were, uh, or the, the Democrats rather, were in power. And when the Republicans mm-hmm. came in, why, of course, he lost that position. But his father loved uh, being in Washington. They didn't live uh, together. They would. Uh, the father would come and join them for uh, Sunday dinner, that type of thing. Uh, but uh, he, he he loved working in in Washington. So, in the 1920s, politics takes on a very different cast than it did when Barclay uh, goes first goes to Congress. And also, at this point, Barclay has has been in uh, Congress for nearly a decade, and. He starts to look elsewhere, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about where he started to cast his eye. Yeah, this is really something uh, quite interesting because um, I just mentioned the the uh, three-storied house on Cleveland Avenue. Uh, He actually purchased that house in 1923, and why that's so uh, strange is because this was the year he had his only uh, failed election. And it occurred because he was campaigning to become the Democratic candidate for the post of governor of Kentucky. And it's a, it's a strange uh, situation because normally a person who went for the governorship in Kentucky with a four-year term, you could not you could not have a second uh, term after the, the the first term, at least not consecutively. And uh, so most people who, who ran for governor in Kentucky, uh, this was the capstone to their uh, political career, or they had some goal to get in a higher office. And the, the normal higher office, of course, would be the Senate. And that's exactly what uh, Barclay was thinking about when he, he ran for governor. And and so once again, this this was a win-win situation for him, the same kind of things that uh, that happened earlier when he was a congressman um, and, and, and when he was doing uh, stuff in, in, in uh, earlier in, in office. Uh, if he lost the primary, he was still a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. And and uh, But it didn't make any difference. The, the campaign would help him build a statewide organization, and his real goal then was to enter the 1926 campaign for a seat in the U.S. Senate. It was really uh, quite quite something. 
Barkley lost that election. Uh, he lost it to uh, in the primary, and he lost it to another Democrat, uh, J. Campbell Cantrell. But the pair were colleagues and friends in, in Congress, and they, they did not attack each other. It's quite different from things that happened in more recent times. And, and, but Barkley only lost it in the primary by, by a few thousand votes. After he lost that particular primary, he actually supported Cantrell. But Cantrell would die a month after the primary. And Barkley made it known that he had no interest in being nominated by the Democratic State Central Committee. Uh, to fill uh, the bill, and and so the uh, that committee selected William uh, J. Fields as the uh, candidate for governor, um, and Barkley even campaigned then on the behalf of uh, Fields. And I'm mentioning all of this. Who won the election, by the way? Barkley received plaudits from Democratic leaders in Kentucky, and so in 1926, these leaders made certain that no Democrat would compete with Barkley for nomination to the U.S. Senate. And so Barkley didn't have to he didn't have to worry about the primary, and he did defeat the Republican uh, incumbent, uh, a fellow by the name of Richard Ernst, uh, for the upper chamber. So Barkley uh, uh, has achieved this goal, even though it wasn't necessarily uh, by winning the governorship, but he yes. establishes that groundwork. He you know, collects his political chits and then he cashes them and he becomes Absolutely. an senator. Absolutely. And, and in fact, this was the, the whole point uh, to that electoral process of, of 1923. He wanted to become the governor. Or no, sorry, he wanted to become the senator. So he enters the United States Senate and within a couple of years, he, as a senator, is faced with one of the greatest crises in American history. And that's the Great Depression. Yes, how does he respond to it, and, and what policies does he propose? Yeah. I'll go ahead and mention that um, by the time of the New Deal, Barkley really had become a powerhouse figure. He gained some national notoriety because of his support for prohibition uh, back in the, in the 20s. And by 1928, he was actually considered uh, seriously for the vice presidency at a, a Democratic National Convention. And in 1932, he was the keynote speaker. Uh, for the Democratic National Convention, and and uh, here we see the the start of the uh, start of the New Deal. He began to talk so much and support the New Deal so much in speeches across the nation, and especially on radio. He did a lot of radio work, and um, except possibly for President Franklin Roosevelt, Barclay became as much, if not more, so identified with the New Deal than anybody else. And uh, so it, it is not really a surprise that the Senate Majority Leader, who was Joseph Robinson, and, and who, by the way, Robinson had uh, campaigned uh, and helped Barkley in his uh, 1926 election to, to be elected to the, the Senate, uh, to serve as his assistant. At first, that was just sort of um, uh, something to do. Uh, it was just something that uh, Robinson asked. But later, the uh, uh, senators, the Democratic senators, actually elected Barkley to be the Assistant Majority Leader. So when Robinson suffered a fatal heart attack in, in uh, July of 1937, uh, President Roosevelt sent Barkley a Dear Alvin letter that addressed the Kentuckian as the acting majority leader. And, uh, well, the letter kind of upset uh, senators who felt the president was trying to pick the next majority leader. And, in fact, a number of senators uh, favored Pat Harrison of Mississippi uh, for that position. And uh, so after Robinson's funeral... Senate Democrats met uh, to vote and approve a new Senate leader, and the two nominees were Barkley and Harrison, and Barkley won, but only by one vote. But here's the key. President Roosevelt 
may have been responsible for that one vote because through second-hand and third-hand parties, he pressured a Harrison supporter who was Illinois Senator William H. Diederich to vote for Barkley. And so Barkley won. So he became the majority leader. Now, being majority leader was a little different in the 1930s than it is today. Yeah. Um, here we have kind of an interesting uh, situation. Uh, Mr. McConnell, of course, is the majority leader. And uh, Mr. McConnell, um, how can we um, say it? It's, it's quite different from Barclay's situation because <laughs> Barclay had a Democratic president. He was a de- Barclay was a Democrat and he had a Democratic mm-hmm. president. And so Barclay actually, in, in terms of getting things done and in terms of getting legislation approved and so forth and so on, uh, he had life uh, uh, much better, much easier. And in, in one sense, he was a more powerful uh, majority leader. Mr. McConnell, by contrast, um, he has been working with a Democratic uh, president, and he's, of course, a, a uh, Republican. And um, so oftentimes, if if he actually got a a law passed in the Senate that Mitch McConnell really, really wanted, and the President of the United States vetoed it, he doesn't have the two-thirds vote necessary to overcome that uh, that particular veto. And and for the most part, Barclay didn't have to worry about those kinds of things because the President belonged to his party. And yet a lot of scholars emphasize how much more independent senators were back then. And this is something that, that, that comes across in terms of the uh, race against Harrison in 37, which is yes. that a lot of senators took issue with what they felt was yes. the president of the United States dictating yes. their choice. Yes. How did Barclay manage those much more independently minded and, 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 and uh, personalities? Yeah, he had a great uh, personality himself and, and uh, people liked him because he, you know, he had funny stories and so forth. And, and he often added uh, little jokes and little uh, stories and so forth when he was uh, talking in, in the Senate. And, uh, and he tried to make friends with, with everybody. And in fact, um, when Sidney Shallot, who uh, uh, taped uh, Barclay, and, and his tapes ended up uh, being the autobiography that, uh, for, 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 for Barclay, uh, he actually complained to Barclay because every time Barclay was talking about the different people, it didn't make any difference if they were Democrats or Republicans. He would always call them, all of them, my good friend, my good friend this, my good friend that. And in fact, he did that so often that, that, uh, that this, uh, this journalist who was, who was going to be working on his autobiography actually got upset with him. And yet you mentioned he didn't really have a many close friends. There was Dorothy... There, there was uh, another gentleman who uh, uh, was the his sort of like his chief of staff as yes, majority leader. Yes. No, he did. Yeah, yeah. He he had he had several people that uh, uh, he worked with uh, regularly. That uh, yeah, that he was close with. Yeah. And as majority leader, Barkley comes in uh, during a period which nowadays people tend to assign as you know the the tail end of the New Deal. But then at the same time, you have the growing crisis in Europe, the uh, war in, in Asia, and the tensions, just general international tensions. Does Barclay have a large international profile during this time? Is he familiar with foreign policy? Yes, uh, this is uh, interesting. And I can I can go back actually to the, the time of Woodrow Wilson, because uh, Woodrow Wilson, of course, was uh, for the Versailles Peace Treaty. He, he helped write that treaty, which included 
the notion of having a League of Nations that uh, presumably or hopefully would uh, uh, prevent any wars in the future after the, the Great War or World War I uh, was over. Barclay was extremely upset when um, the Senate did not approve the, the treaty and did not approve the League of Nations. And so right after that, he, he joined the um, Parliamentary Union, the Interparliamentary Union, and he actually became a leader in that uh, organization. The organization was started by the uh, the French and the British near the end of the 19th century. And it contained legislators, if you will, from different countries. And they would meet. And what they were trying to do was to talk about mediation and talking and discussing and having those conversations instead of um, trying to fight wars with each other. And so Barclay was very much uh, involved in that. And that's one of the reasons he became a very strong supporter of the United Nations, for example. Uh, this was uh, something very, very um, important to him. Barclay, by the way, had, had gone uh, to the front lines in World War I. And in fact, uh, he was shot at by Germans. Uh, he was only about 75 feet away from uh, the Germans. So he, he went right to the very front lines. Um, he also did the same thing uh, in, in one sense in, in World War II and also in the Korean War. So he was very much, you know, not just uh, involved with international relations, but he also made it a point to be an active participant, both as a yes. legislator and then also a yes. witness to uh, events as they, exactly. were, as they were taking yes. place. And, and, and I might uh, I might mention that in terms of World War II, one of them, what I consider to be one of the most important uh, pieces of legislation, uh, Barclay is, is partly and, and majorly responsible for, and, and that was the uh, Lend-Lease Bill, which was uh, passed in the United States in, in March of 1941. And that, of course, is before December 7th of 41, when uh, the Japanese attacked uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. And, of course, a lot of people do know that um, World War II began when Germany invaded uh, Poland, although I... Uh, tend to feel that uh, World War II actually began when Japan attacked China in 1937. But nevertheless, he he was largely responsible for the quick and easy passage of the Lend-Lease Bill, and it supplied billions of dollars in aid to allied countries. And many people have commented and, and understand that without all of that money going to various allied uh, countries and, and helping them uh, secure the kind of uh, military hardware that they needed, the, the war might have had a different uh, different result. Uh, I might go ahead and just mention that during the war, Barclay's life actually became easier in one sense because in wartime, most of the senators, Republicans, Democrats, didn't make any difference. They all strongly supported legislation designed to uh, to, to win the war. So uh, Barclay actually had a little bit easier time, which helped him because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, he was uh, doing a lot of stuff to, to help his wife. And yet, in spite of his prominence, and in spite of his importance to uh, the Roosevelt administration in terms of getting legislation through Congress, Barclay's name isn't often mentioned as being a contender in 1940, when there was that, when people expected Roosevelt to, uh, you know, finish out his term, or he, he's never really mentioned in 1944 as being a uh, as being Roosevelt's vice presidential nominee. Right. Uh, and yet, as you mentioned, he long had his eye on the presidency. So, what was it that really stopped him from uh, a, a, attaining that 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 position of? of you know, being Roosevelt's right. vice presidential nominee yeah. in 1944, yeah. or why wasn't he discussed in 40? 
I, I can just back up just uh, briefly uh, to, to the 40 because his name did come up. Uh, people were talking about Barkley as, as a possibility as a presidential candidate uh, for 1940, but uh, FDR decided he was going to do that. And even that is kind of an interesting issue because FDR was actually making some plans for retirement and uh, going back to Hyde Park and uh, setting up a special library and all kinds of interesting things. But anyhow, FDR decided finally I'm going to go and, and, and uh, you know run. And, and part of that had to do with the, the, the fact that the war in Europe is thirded and, and uh, the change in leadership was not necessarily a good idea. But in terms of Barclay and, and uh and, and Roosevelt, and in terms of a higher office, the the problem began in January uh, of 1944 uh, between um, uh, Roosevelt and, and Barclay. Roosevelt handed Congress a request for a very sharp increase in taxes, a $10.5 billion. And we have to understand that that's a huge amount. If you go back to, well, let's say the 1920s, the total federal budget was under $3 billion. So it gives you some notion yeah, that $10.5 billion on top of you know, already uh, tax uh, increases was, was a huge amount. And absolutely no one in the House or the Senate wanted to do that. And, and so they, they, they didn't. Uh, they, did, they just couldn't. And the reason is that in the House, of course, 44 was an electoral year, and uh, those who were up for re-election, they were going to be real. Uh, they were going to uh, have a, a struggle, and one third of the senators would be uh, senators would be up for re-election, and they would have a, a, a trouble with opponents because they they voted for the 10.5 billion dollar uh, tax increase. So the House and the Senate actually passed in February of 1944 a, a bill that would raise taxes by 2.3 billion. Roosevelt threatened the veto. And Barclay not once but twice went to the White House and he pleaded with Roosevelt not to use the veto power. And Barclay knew that Congress would absolutely not approve $10.5 billion. But more importantly, Barclay was afraid that he could not get the two-thirds vote to override a veto. And in fact, he did a poll among members of the Senate. You know, would you would you vote two thirds? You know, can we get two thirds of you to to override the veto? And, and no, they they wouldn't do that. And so Roosevelt would not get any uh, type of tax increase whatsoever. So despite Barclay's efforts, FDR vetoed the bill. He sent it back to Congress. He had cute passages and glib phrases connected with his uh, message, and it just infuriated Barclay. And and Barclay shredded every point that the president had made and ended his address by offering his resignation as majority leader. And he pleaded, absolutely pleaded with Congress to vote to override the veto so that some kind of tax increase would, would take place, but not the $10.5 billion. And it's very important because Congress did, in fact, override the president's veto. Otherwise, without that speech, that would not have happened. And so Barclay did resign as majority leader, but he was immediately reelected. And uh, for the next uh, several months, uh, Barclay and, and Roosevelt only had a couple meetings, and the meetings were not very happy ones. FDR was very reserved towards Barclay. And um, when it came time for uh, Roosevelt to uh, think about uh, a fourth term as president, and he was thinking about his vice president uh, choices, he told advisors that Barclay was simply too old. But here's the joke. Here's the thing. Barclay was 66 at that point in time, but FDR was 62, and Truman, who was the person that, that FDR picked, was 60. So there's only a few years difference, you know, between the other two individuals. 
And as an insider, Barclay knew only too well about Roosevelt's tendency to hold grudges against those who, who crossed him. So a lot of people are, are convinced that um, had this episode over the uh, uh, tax increase had not taken place, Barclay would have been the vice president, and he would have then been, in April of 1945, the president of the United States because, of course, Roosevelt passed away. What were Barclay's relations like with Truman, both as uh, senators and then uh, once Truman becomes president yes. and Barclay remains yes, uh, that, as majority leader? Yes, that, that was really uh, uh, something a little more positive. Uh, they were they were actually good friends. And uh, one of the reasons why they were good friends is because Barclay uh, campaigned for Truman when he was up for, for election. And um, uh, during the war, uh, Barclay uh, worked with Truman and, uh, and supported Truman. And um, so they, they, they were very good, very close. And when Truman became president after the, uh, the death of uh, Roosevelt in, in April of 45, Barclay was the one who had the um, Democratic portions, at least, of the Senate uh, to vote their support. They, they made an official, you know, that, that we, we support the president of the United States and so forth. And, uh, and Truman really appreciated that. So they, they got along very well. Was that the... Uh, w- uh, the key factor in why uh, Truman selected him, or what did he feel oh. like he was repaying a debt? Or okay, um, oh, I, yeah, I understand what you're, you're suggesting uh, in terms of the vice presidency. Yeah, what what happened in in 1948 in Philadelphia, the Democratic National Convention met, and uh, everybody who was there, the 1,500 delegates who came to that convention, uh, were extremely unhappy. They were gloomy. Uh, it was a terrible situation because they they were all convinced that the next president would be Republican Thomas E. Dewey. And Barclay, however, delivered a, a really dazzling keynote address and it brought the convention to life. And as a result, the delegates were, were shouting and so forth, oh my gosh, we need, we need Barclay as the VP candidate. And so in one sense, uh, Truman was actually forced, if you will, uh, to select Barclay to be his running mate. I mean, he wasn't, you know, unhappy about it. It's just that, uh, in one sense, the uh, the convention actually uh, determined who was going to be the vice president uh, candidate. And uh, then, of course, uh, the, the thing happened. Uh, Truman and, and Barclay engineered one of the greatest political upsets in American history. Uh, Truman rode across the United States in the train, and Barclay took um, a DC-3, flew 150,000 miles, and delivered 250 speeches. Uh, so the Iron Man uh, really did his thing. And, uh, well, after the election, Barclay, who would soon be known as the Beat, also became the, the working vice president. I, I was struck by the uh, analogy with the current vice president, Joe Biden, about how he's the vice president of the United States, but he's also become uh, something of almost a, a figure of affection in the public. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and, and how Barclay it was this, this you know, very, he didn't simply, you know, disappear he was he was still very much of a public figure. Yes. And and of course he uh that was when he uh got married again. Yes. True. Yeah. Barclay um uh, became very, very popular and in fact uh, various wags uh, would would comment uh in, in the late nineteen forties that uh, uh quiz shows on radio, for example, couldn't ask a Barclay question because everybody knew Barclay so they would always, you know, know the answer and, and that type of thing. So <laughs> It was just one of those uh, those elements. Yeah, Barclay was uh, he was a very popular uh, individual. Uh, Pageant Magazine, for example, a, a, a favorite magazine of many people, 
uh, listed him as the, the hardest working member of the Senate. And, and he even, frankly, even ranked ahead of President Truman as the man most requested for the uh, Democratic, by the Democratic Speakers Bureau. And that's really incredible. And then Look Magazine listed him as uh, second only to General Dwight D. Eisenhower as America's most fascinating American. And Barclay also received the Collier Award, which um, was determined by newspaper editors across the nation. And it, it awarded Barclay $10,000 in 1948 for his distinguished service uh, to the nation. Barclay, by the way, donated every penny of that $10,000 to the University of Louisville Medical School to study heart problems. And, of course, this was one year after his wife's, uh, his wife's death. Um, and that, I guess, would uh, just bring me automatically then to his second marriage, and uh, that, that's going to be in 1949. Um, Barclay met Jane Rucker Hadley on board the White House yacht. Uh, her late husband was the best man at the wedding of Clark Clifford, and Clark Clifford, I should say. Clark was an aide to and a close friend of President Truman, and uh, the middle-aged widow, Jane, visited Clarks in Washington, uh, but like them, she was uh, from St. Louis where she worked for the Wabash Railroad. Um, Jane was very attractive and vivacious, and Jane caught Barclay's attention and later his affection. Uh, she returned to St. Louis, but every time Barclay went somewhere for a speech, uh, and he made about 40 of those speeches in, in 1949, um, always managed to uh, have his airplane land in St. Louis. And before long, the press nationally and even internationally followed this uh, sort of May-December romance, and it was capped by their wedding in November. Um, so Barclay became the first vice president to marry in office. And yet he wasn't just simply a celebrity as vice president. He was involved with the Truman administration as well, correct? Yes, yes he was very much involved. And uh, there, there are good reasons for that. Truman... When he became vice president with Roosevelt, he was only Truman was only vice president for a couple of months because of, of Roosevelt's death in April of, of 1945, and Truman was left out of the administration. He he did not take part, and and as a result, Truman did not really understand what was involved in in the, the office of the president. He, he he just did not know, and he had to be. He was very humble about uh, about his circumstances and. His, and so he wanted to make sure that Barclay absolutely knew everything that he could know about the office of the president. I mean, if something happened to Truman, he, you know, if he died or something, or frankly, if he were assassinated, there was an assassination attempt against Truman, um, that, that Barclay could, could actually take over. Um, Barclay would sit in all cabinet-level meetings. This never happened before. And, and it was simply to, to make sure that Barclay understood the office of the president and, and what would happen and so forth, but also because he could share information about Congress with uh, the, the, the different secretaries who headed up the, uh, the, the basic uh, large departments of, of the federal government. Um, Barclay was uh, uh, very much a, a working type um, vice president. It was just absolutely uh, fantastic, all the different things that uh, he was involved in doing. Um, when the National Security Council was uh, formed by Congress, uh, Barclay had a place. He was part of that National Security Council. Um, so it, it, he, he had a lot of work to do. And yet by 1952, as Truman decides against running for another term in office, yes. Barclay is a little challenged when it comes to making his own claim to be the Democratic nominee. 
Yes, he did. Yeah, he he had a bad time. Truman. He did actively seek it, though. Yeah, yeah, he did actively. Yeah, he did uh, actively seek the uh, seek the nomination for the for the White House. Barkley decided he would run, and uh, this this was, however, um, a serious problem because at this point in time, after after November, he would have been uh, seventy five years old. And, and before the president, that's well before the presidential inauguration, if he had won the, the national election. And neither major political party had ever put a man his age up as, as a nominee. And, um, and Truman and uh, a few close friends and, and colleagues knew that Barkley had a serious eyesight problem. If he became president of the United States, all his speeches would have to be off the cuff. And someone would have to read to Barclay every single document and correspondence that might cross his desk. And, of course, the president's desk is always loaded with documents of one type or another. And um, at any rate, um, when when the Barclays arrived at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago on a, on a hot July day, um, like we're having right now <laughs> here in St. Augustine, <laughs> they, would, uh, they, they briskly walked the half mile from the train station to the hotel it was sort of a little demonstration uh, designed to show that Barclay really was fit for the presidential job. Labor leaders, however, had already notified the press that Barclay was simply too old. And next day, when Barclay met with labor leaders as a group, uh, the morning newspapers were shouting, Labor dumps Barclay. And at the meeting, Barclay could not overcome the fact that the group favored a younger person like um, Governor Adlai Stevenson of, of Illinois. And because labor had an impact on the delegations of several states, and along with this adverse headlines in the morning newspapers, Barclay decided to withdraw his name from the nomination. That was the bad news. There is some good news. Pressure from President Truman uh, required that Barclay be given the opportunity to deliver his swan song speech to the National Convention. And, of course, he could not read a speech. He couldn't see it. But his impromptu remarks were very good, and Barclay received one of the longest ovations in party's history. Wow. So 1953, he leaves the vice presidency, and for so many people, this would be the end of a political career. Yes. It seemed, and yet – go ahead. <laughs> yeah. It, it seemed to be the end of his political career, right? And, and Barclay decided uh, right away that, that he really wasn't going to resign. In, in terms of, uh, he wasn't going to retire in, in, in the normal sense. And in fact, right away, he, he signed a, a six-month contract with NBC and NBC to do a weekly television show called Meet the Veep. Uh, he was he was called the Veep. Uh, he was the, the one and only real Veep that's ever been. I know we have a TV show now that's called that, but uh, nevertheless, that's, that's what he had. Um, and he was also um, interviewed many hours uh, by Sidney Shallot, uh, who prepared the Barclays autobiography. And I have to tell you, I, I listened to the, uh, the entire taped process, which went over several months. And it took me three days to listen to all the tapes uh, related to uh, Barclays autobiography, which, by the way, he didn't write a single uh, word. He couldn't write a word. But of course, in one sense, he did write the autobiography, but he did that orally because uh, Sidney Shallot uh, wrote what Barclay had uh, uh, said in, in in that autobiography, but anyhow, by 1954 he was bored, and he decided <laughs> on another demonstration that uh, 
he was not too old. And, and in one sense, what he was doing, he was trying to get even, if you will, with perhaps certain labor leaders and so forth. Uh, and, and so he campaigned in Kentucky for a seat in the U.S. Senate, and he, he defeated the incumbent, John Sherman Cooper. And uh, and he got well, Cooper was no slouch. He no, he had a absolutely he would have gone have a long career in Kentucky politics. He himself. did. He had a very long career in Kentucky politics. He had been a senator. He will be a senator. Uh, he became our ambassador to India, which at that point in time was extremely a, a crucial um, ambassadorship in the in the Cold War era. And uh, yeah, it was it was really quite uh, really quite something. But anyhow, he he did of course uh, then become a junior senator. Back in the beginning, a, yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah, he had to start all over. His, his, uh, uh, he, he no longer had the the power that he had uh, before. But he did. He was elected uh, to become the member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and that's a very prestigious uh, position. And uh, of course, uh, Jane, you know, his wife had to read the morning newspapers to him at home because he couldn't see that well. And, and Barclay's staff had to do the same with correspondence and, and congressional legislation. Uh, he had a very bad time. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I discovered uh, this problem two ways. Number one, I read uh, Truman's um, autobiography. And Truman, in his autobiography, mentions that, I forgot if it was 1951 or 52, he, he watched Barclay, and it took Barclay over 10 minutes to sign his own name. 10 minutes to sign his own name. For most of us, it would take 10 seconds, but he had to have that much time. And the other thing that I saw that was uh, demonstrating uh, the, the difficulty, uh, I think this must have been in the late 1940s, there was a speech that he gave, and it, it was typed out. It was like a 20-page uh, speech, but uh, the speech that he delivered from that was actually 75 pages long because the print had to be so high. Uh, in order for him to uh, to be able to to read it, so he had a, a serious problem. Nearly. And yet, you you write that uh, in spite of that, though he was so good as an extemporaneous speaker, yes, that he was still very much in demand, yeah. and that was how he died. That's that's right. Yeah, his vision was declining, and and his wife uh, and and Barclay kept visiting uh, places and seeing people and so forth, and and getting those images that Barclay would uh, would not be able to see before too much longer, and and that's how he ended up uh, at Lexington, Virginia, uh, where he gave a 15-minute keynote address for the mock political uh, convention conducted by students at Washington and Lee University. The students, by the way, received him very nicely. Um, Near the end of his short talk, Barclay admitted he could no longer run for president, but uh, he said he would be – well, he, he actually gave a little summary of his service to the country. And then he mentioned that he had returned to Congress and he was a junior senator and, and he had to sit in the back row and, and all of those things. And and then he concluded his, uh, his presentation by saying, and I think I'm quoting correctly, I'm glad to sit in the back row for I would rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than sit in the seats of the mighty. And uh, he then stepped back, bowed his head, and received a deafening ovation from the students. But unfortunately, at that point in time, he also collapsed and died from a massive heart attack. On the other hand, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. Yeah, it's quite a way to go. It is. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now. Uh, yes, right now I'm uh, working on a manuscript that uh, has to do with Russian and early Soviet aviation. 
it's going basically from from the beginning to about 1922, but that that covers a lot of the the czarist period of time. So that's what I'm working on. Well, it sounds like a very interesting project. Yes, uh, one of the things that I did was to teach aviation history at a aviation school, and uh, so I, I love that. And I've, I've written a number of articles and and other longer things, including a, a recent book. Good luck with that project, Dr. Livy. Thank you very much for. Uh, you know, taking your time, taking time out of your schedule to uh, speak with us about your uh, biography of Alvin Barkley, a fascinating book about a fascinating man. And thank you very much, Mark. I enjoyed it. Uh-huh.